following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we're turning again to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll remember that uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is a letter that, that has focused so far on a defense of Paul's ministry and a defense of the gospel that's at the center of his ministry. This is a gospel that Paul has uh, declared uh, to many uh, seemed folly and foolishness. But as Paul has reminded us, it is a gospel that is actually the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Today we're, we're picking up Paul's words uh, at the beginning of chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to focus tonight on verses 1 through 11, but I'll read through verse 15 uh, as you read. If you would join me in reading 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 15. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And and even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to the labor, to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only through fire. Father, thank you for your word, your word given to your people. We pray that you, your spirit who wrote these words, would now now use them and apply them to our life, that we might grow more and more into your likeness. We pray this through Christ. Amen. If you, were, if you were here with us last Sunday, Pastor York was finishing preaching through uh, 
chapter 2 of this book. And Paul was explaining at the end of chapter 2 that the Spirit of God is the one who reveals the wisdom of God and the truth of God. But the natural man who does not have God's Spirit is not able to understand the things of God. In other words, as as Paul was describing and as Pastor York was was preaching, uh, having the Spirit of God being united to God's Spirit is necessary, is a necessary prerequisite for us to understand the truth and the wisdom of God. But for those who have trusted Christ, Paul concluded chapter 2, we have the mind of Christ since we have been united to him. It would seem to be a given based on Paul's words here in chapter 2. If Paul and his Corinthian brothers here here in, in the church at Corinth have the mind of Christ due to being united to Christ by his spirit, that they would be included in those who understand and have spiritual wisdom and spiritual truths from God. So it's kind of a surprise when we jump into chapter 3, and Paul begins in chapter 3 by saying that he is not able to address these Corinthian Christians as, as spiritual people, but he needed to speak to them as, as natural people or people of the flesh, and he continues to speak to them in that way. Now, uh, as you, if you were with us last week and if we were reading through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Paul uses phrases like spiritual man, spiritual person, people of the spirit, natural man, fleshly man, man of the flesh, and you kind of start to twist these phrases around and, and get a little confused as we, going, as we go through here. But I think the question is, what is Paul saying? Why is Paul addressing brothers, those he calls brothers in Christ, as people who are people of the flesh or, or who are uh, continuing to be uh, unable to receive the word of God as people who would have his spirit. Maybe we can think of it this way. I'm confident if I were to take a poll of those of you here tonight, or or maybe go around and interview each one of you uh, individually, all of you would probably be able to come up with some area of your life or or some way in which uh, you are, are not too handy or somewhat inept, maybe something that you're not very good at. I know I can, can come up with a few things right off the bat. And we'd probably know fairly quickly if we're, if, what things we're not good at. Enough, enough years of experience makes that fairly evident to us. I remember uh, the first time that I got to shoot skeet with my dad and some friends. I was probably 12, 13, something along that. And I was so excited because here, here I am, 12, 13-year-old guy. I get to shoot a gun and blow up clay discs in the air. It doesn't get much more exciting than that for me. Um, and I remember, you know, stepping to the line the first time. I've got, got the gun there, and they fire off the clay pigeon, and I shoot, and nothing happens. And, you know, they fire off three, four, five more clay pigeons, and they all break on the ground because uh, I didn't hit anything. And at this point, I remember, I remember looking over to my friend's dad who was helping me out, and I said, I don't think it's actually shooting anything. And... He pointed to five empty shotgun shells on the ground and said, well, if it ejects empty shells, that means it shot something. And uh, so they got a couple dads around, and they were sort of watching, and you know, everything, you shot too high, you shot too low, you shot too high. I must have gone through half a box of, of shells and, uh, with, with no luck whatsoever. And uh, I remember sort of handing the gun back, and, and at that point, uh, I, I remember feeling something like manhood is beyond my reach right now. And uh, clearly, I... I 
I was inept when it came to shooting a shotgun. But, but no one looked at me and was critical of me. I'd never done it before. It was my first time, and, and it wasn't something where, where I was going to take blame. There's another category of inept, however, um, that's much different from novice inexperience. In this category, for me, I'll put uh, folding shirts. I remember shortly after we were married, um, I took some shirts out of my drawer, and they were extremely wrinkled. And I, I made a comment about this to my wife, and kind of implying that she might need some work as a newly married wife in washing clothes, because my clothes were extremely wrinkled. And uh, she uh, you know, pointed out quickly that if I wasn't willing to take the time to fold my shirts properly, I was going to get wrinkled shirts. That was about nine years ago. And um, about nine weeks ago, we had somewhat of a similar conversation. I'm still pulling wrinkled shirts out of my drawers. And uh, I'm still convinced, apparently, that my very fast method of, of folding shirts and throwing them in the drawer is still better than taking the time to fold them properly. And yet, lo and behold, I'm still pulling wrinkled shirts out of my drawers. Now, this is a very different category of inept. Because rather than novice inexperience or something that you know, I've just never done before, this is something that, for me, uh, I have not grown in. I have not grown in an ability that I should grow in. And that carries some blame with it, unlike missing a bunch of clay pigeons the first time I shoot, uh, shoot skeet. And I think um, if we can understand the distinction of these two categories of inept or, or failure, that helps us understand something of what Paul's getting at in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 3 here. Now, Paul starts off in verse 1 by reminding the Corinthians that when he first came to Corinth, he was not able to address them as spiritual people. And uh, at the time, they were new converts to Christianity. They had just come to to understand the truth. Um, and so at the point when they are still infants in Christ, when they had, had just for the first time learned the gospel after a lifetime of, of failure, of, of living as, as natural men, this was, this was understandable. And the Greek word that's used here for, for people of, of the flesh is one to describe what you're made up of. What is your nature? What's the core of who you are? At that time, when Paul first came to minister in Corinth, when these people first came to trust Christ, at that time, they were people who were made up of the flesh. That's who they were. And so Paul treated them as such. He treated them as, as newly born believers, as newly born believers who needed to receive milk and not solid food, the, the basic truths of the gospel message. But that's what we would expect from people who come to know Christ for the first time. But in chapter 3, or excuse me, in verse 3, uh, Paul goes on to say, but you are still of the flesh. You are, you are even now not ready to move forward. You are still people of the flesh. And, and here, and in, in, um, this is where uh, the Greek actually is helpful, where the English is not, because the English phrase, once again, is people of the flesh, still of the flesh. But the Greek word is a new word. It's a different word that's used here. It's a word that means people who are characterized by the flesh, people who act according to the flesh. You see, no longer are they people who by nature were fleshly. Now they're people who are just still acting fleshly. Whereas before, they were infants in Christ, and so their characteristics of the flesh were very understandable and, and were what we would expect of someone who just came to hear the message of Christ. Now, years later... Paul would expect something different from them, and yet they are still characterized 
by the flesh. They are still people who, where they should be showing fruit of the Spirit, are continuing to show the actions of the flesh. And here, Paul begins to say, there is blame attached to this people of the flesh. It's like, no one blamed me for missing every shot shooting skeet, but nine years of sloppy shirt folding is blameworthy. So for these Christians, the initial stage of infants in Christ is not blameworthy. But to still be unable to move past the fleshly characteristics and not be ready for the food that Paul would love to feed them is blameworthy. Well, this is Paul's accusation of the Corinthian Christians. This is the stage that, that sets uh, the coming uh, verses of this chapter. And over the next ten verses, Paul begins to explain this accusation. And as, as we look at these verses, I want to I just see two things. First, uh, I want to see what exactly was so fleshy about these Corinthian believers. What was wrong? What was characterizing these Corinthian believers that led to Paul's critique of them? And second, what was the gospel truth that they were missing that led to them acting in this manner? So let's look at these two things. First, what exactly were these Corinthian Christians doing that was so worldly that Paul could not address them as spiritual people? Well, he tells us there in verses 3 and 4. While there is jealousy and strife among you, Paul says, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, this is, this is uh, the same challenge that Paul made to the Corinthians back in chapter 1. If you, were, if you were with us back in chapter 1, you'll remember in verses 11 and 12 back in chapter 1 <clears throat> that, that Paul noted, it has been reported to me, he says, by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In other words, behind this is the the situation in Corinth where there are factions and divisions and strife breaking out in the church. There's the the Paul faction over here and the Apollos faction over here and the ever-popular Simply Jesus faction, you know, here. There's there's people claiming different uh, authorities and and opinions and and jealousy and strife and striving are taking uh, these these people and, and splitting the church into different sections. And so, as Paul says here in chapter 3, if one of you is claiming to follow Paul and another is claiming to follow Apollos, you are behaving in a merely human way. You are thinking and acting like people of the flesh, not like people who have the Spirit of God. Why is that the case? Why would quarreling and division and strife be characteristics of fleshy people rather than spirit people? Well, the Spirit of God is not divided. If you think um, to the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, you might, you might remember that, that Paul talks in that book about what characterizes people who have been brought together by the Spirit of God, saved by the Spirit of God. And he says that these people uh, are to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one God... And his spirit dwells in all of his people and so unites them in one people so that if, if all of God's people are filled with God's one spirit, then, then spiritual people are one, are united in God's spirit. They're not fractured and factioned off into to, uh, uh, different parties. 
Jealous strife dividing the church marks us as people of the flesh. Unity in the spirit marks us as people whom God has united with himself through his spirit. So it's these strivings and divisions that are the things marking the Corinthian Christians as not yet able to eat solid food, still needing the basic milk of Christian teaching. In verses 5 through 9 then, Paul will now lay out the key truth. What is this key gospel truth that the Corinthians need to hear, need to be reminded of, that will cut to the heart of their strife and quarreling? What do the Corinthians need to hear? What, what truth about who Christ is and their calling in Christ do these, uh, these brothers in Christ need to hear that will cut to their worldly attitudes? Paul focuses in verses 5 through 9. He begins by, by sort of drawing attention to these men that the Corinthians were following. And he says, uh, you know, what is Apollos and what is Paul? You, you who say, well, I, I'm with Apollos and, and I'm with Paul. He says, well, what are Paul what, and Apollos? It's an interesting question because we would sort of expect him to say, who is Paul or who is Apollos? That's not what he's asking. He's asking, what is Paul? What is Apollo? In other words, of what importance? Of what significance? Why does Paul or Apollos matter? What, what is their nature? Who are, you know, what, are their, what are their roles in the church? What are they? Of what significance or importance are these men the Corinthians are rallying behind in their factions and in their divisions? And Paul says uh, here in, uh, in verses 5 uh, through 7, he says, uh, Paul and Apollos are nothing other than servants. They are servants that just happen to be the means that the Lord himself has chosen to use in each individual case according to his will. Paul and Apollos aren't the reason the, Christ, the, the Corinthians became Christians. Paul and Apollos aren't the source or the cause or, or the thing that brought them to Christ any more than a waiter is the one responsible for the food that's set before you when you're, you're, you're eating out. You can imagine sort of this ridiculous picture where a number of couples go out to eat at a restaurant and, and they all get their food and they start arguing with one another over whose food is better based on which waiter brought the plate out. Well, they're all at the same restaurant. It was all cooked by the same chef. It was all set before them. The waiter's just the one who carries the plate out. You see, that's what Paul's saying here. What's Apollos? What is Paul? They're just the means. They're just the servant. And word servant is the same word that would be used for a waiter at that point. They're just the servant who brought it. The means that brought the message of Christ. But Christ is the one. God working through Christ is the one who gives the growth. He is the one who brings the cause of conversion, who changes hearts. So it is with God through Christ that all honor, praise, and allegiance belongs, not with the waiter, the servant, who brings the message, who is the means. Paul goes on to use another analogy. So he uses the servant analogy. He uses then the analogy of, of growing plants. This is an analogy that, that we're all familiar with. We're from Lancaster, after all. We, we see growing stuff going on around, all around us. And so Paul says, look, yeah, I, I planted the gospel and Apollos watered the gospel, but, but it's God who gave the growth. And to assume that Paul or Apollos were the ones who saved people or that Paul or Apollos de- deserved some allegiance because of their role in gospel ministry 
is as preposterous as assuming you or I make seeds grow because we drop them in the ground. That's not uh, an accurate depiction of the role of ministers in gospel ministry. It is God who gives the growth. It is God who makes things happen. It is God who changes hearts. And so he is the one who deserves all praise, all glory, all honor, all allegiance for anything that happens in gospel ministry. And as brought to my mind, I was, I was preparing for this sermon, and I was also uh, just finished reading a children's classic to my children. I'm not sure how many of you have read the Frog and Toad stories. Frog and Toad have a, a number of collected tales and adventures together. And I was reading one in which Toad sees his friend Frog sweating in the hot sun, weeding his garden. And, and now Toad says, well, I think I'd like to plant a garden as well. And his friend Frog gives him some seeds and says, well, you can do this, but it's a lot of work to, to care for a garden. So Toad goes home and he plants the seeds in the ground and he sits there and he watches the seeds. Of course, after a few hours, nothing happens. And by evening, he's pretty angry at these seeds. So he starts shouting at the ground to the seeds, you know, grow, seeds, grow, grow. And his friend Frog comes by, or by and says, yeah, you, know, you, you don't want to scare the seeds. You might not want to yell at the ground. That's, that's not a good thing to do. So, so Toad develops his growing plan. And on day one, he spends the day reading poetry to the seeds out in the ground. And day two, he's out with his umbrella in the rain, uh, singing, singing songs. Uh, to serenade his seeds. And on day three, he's back out. And on day three, uh, I believe he is reading them stories. He's reading them stories. And by the end of the third day, he's so exhausted from trying to make his seeds grow that he just falls asleep. And he wakes up two days later and finds, lo and behold, his seeds have sprouted. And the punchline of the story, Toad comments to Frog, wow, you were right, growing a garden is hard work. And of course, The reason the punchline is funny is because Toad thinks it's been hard work and he hasn't done a single thing that he could actually do yet. He's not responsible for any of the results of these seeds yet. So this is is the analogy that Paul is saying here. We all know it's funny when it's a funny children's story when someone claims to have a role in making seeds grow. So why would we think that there is some truth in saying that a gospel minister makes people's hearts change? It is God who changes hearts. It is God who changes the hearts. This is the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the work of God alone through and through. God chooses his ministers. He chooses them as instruments, as fellow workers, to plant and water his field. But he is the one who brings the growth. I love uh, a phrase that uh, Charles Hodge uses as he comments on this passage. He, He says this, he says, The work of the ministry is the ordinary means that God often uses in conversion. Yet ministerial acts are not necessary conditions of faith, for all the efficacy is of God and God alone. Isn't that what this passage is saying? No one deserves praise for the fruit of the gospel except God alone, for there is no gospel fruit except by the work of God alone through His Son Christ. And as Paul sort of works through his analogies, he, he comes to summarize this point in verses 10 and 11 when he says that there is no other foundation that can be laid other than the one that has been laid, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the foundation of all gospel ministry. 
He is the foundation of each faith individually, and He is the foundation of the church collectively. He is the foundation of those who have believed and those who will believe. The name of Jesus is the beginning and the end. He is the source and the hope, the object of all those who put their faith in God. So you see, you see Paul's point here. You see Paul's point. He's saying, brothers in Corinth, how, how can we jealously seek to gain respect or recognition or put our stock in individual men or ministers or groups as if one is superior to another when the foundation is Christ, all of the work is God's alone, and he is the one who deserves all credit and all allegiance. So Paul's saying, stop acting like fleshy humans. Stop striving with one another and quarreling because of accomplishments or people or opinions or allegiances and turn to Christ. There is no room for this sort of strife if we are appealing to the work of God through Christ alone, if he is the foundation of all changes of heart of all those who are God's people. Well, these are, these are the two core truths of this passage. And I want to take some time now to, to think through what, what are some of the applications of this passage. And there are many. We don't have time to think of all of the ways we could apply this passage to, to our lives, to our church, to the ministry of the gospel. But I want to think about a few ways that this passage speaks to us as God's people. First, first application I want to look at. This, this passage calls us to see that the way we treat one another in the community of God's people is one of the principal marks of whether the Spirit of God dwells in us. How we interact with each other as God's people is one of the key markers of whether there is a relationship with God, whether God's Spirit is in us. As people filled with the Spirit of God, we are to live together as God's people in ways that demonstrate His presence with us. And jealousy, strife, division, and unresolved conflict are the opposite of demonstrating the presence of God's Spirit with His people. And I think if we, think back, if we sit back, we know this and we would acknowledge this. We would acknowledge that um, God is glorified or God's Spirit is is, is evident when his people are at peace with one another. I don't think that's a, a new or unusual concept. But it, I wonder if sometimes we apply it incorrectly. If, I think oftentimes we think of it like this. We think, if we are all growing in the fruits of the Spirit, then there will be less conflict in the church because we're all growing uh, as people who are more and more like Christ. And, and that's certainly true in some way. But while this may be true at one level, it also ignores the fact that in the church are still sinners. And all of us, our sinners, are going to interact with sinners in the church. And so if we only focus on, well, when we get to be more holy, as we get to be more holy, uh, then there'll be less reason for conflict because we'll all be acting really well towards one another. That leaves room for, and sometimes can even leave room for a feeling of, of feeling justified in the face of conflict or division or frustration when we respond to each other in exactly the same way as anyone in the world would respond to conflict. And I think if I were to, again, pull the room, I think we could say that just about every single one of us has seen conflict break apart 
members of God's body. We have seen conflict, frustration, strife, division, split God's people. And I wonder if sometimes it's because we think, well, sure, as we get more holy, we'll see less conflict, but when conflict happens, we still respond the way fleshy people respond. And we may miss the fact that the Spirit of God calls us to respond differently than people of the world. This passage is calling us to remember that the way we respond to one another in community is also driven by the presence of God's Spirit with us, by the truth that we are one, by the the truth that we are united together by the same Spirit of God. And so we should, as we interact with one another and, and, and we, we come across conflict or, or are uh, offended when, when a fellow member of, of Christ does something that is offensive to us or they insult one of our children or they do something that, that we don't think is appropriate, is the fact that we are united to that person by the Spirit of God, that we are one with them, in Christ, one of the truths, one of the biblical truths that guides our response to that person. See, I realize, and I clearly want to acknowledge, there are many biblical truths and wisdom of peacemaking and reconciliation that will need to play out in different scenarios and different relationships. But I also know how easy it is for us to respond the same way that anyone in the world would respond to conflict rather than seeing our actions as guided by the truth that the Spirit of God dwells in us and the Spirit of God dwells in them. And Jesus Christ's blood has forgiven us and Jesus Christ's blood has forgiven them. And these are the truths that need to guide us, to guide us as spiritual people so that we will interact differently with others in the presence of sin in the body of Christ. This is... This is one application individually within one church. I think um, the truth of, of the Spirit of God um, guiding our relationships with others in, in uh, God's church also applies to how we as a local church interact and think about and respond to people of other local churches. This passage leaves no room for pride or arrogance in who we are or who we follow. This passage leaves room only for humility in who we are and who we follow because we are people in Christ and we follow Christ. And that leaves no room for pride and only humility. I don't want to, by this comment, in, in any way undermine the importance of seeking the truth of God's word or discerning truth from error. But it seems to me that arrogance and pride are a specific weakness of people in our denomination of people who are reformed and love it. And again, this is not a critique of the truths we believe by any means, but it is a call to remember that the truth that we believe leaves room only for humility and not for arrogance or pride or allegiance to what we believe or who we follow for that sake alone. So may this individually as we interact with one another in our local church and may this collectively as a member of God's people as we interact with those in other local churches change our approach as people who are filled with the Spirit of God leaving room only for for humility and not for pride or arrogance or responding as people of the flesh. Second application I think this, this passage calls us to This passage reminds us that if if God gives the growth of gospel ministry, 
If God gives the growth, if he is the one who brings about the fruit of gospel ministry, then you and I as his people are not judged on what we accomplish, but on the faithfulness of our labor. Look at, look at verse 8 in this passage. In verse 8, Paul says this. He says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. His wages come not by how many people are one to Christ or, or how many successful stories can be told, but on the faithfulness of labor. I can only praise God for many missionary stories that I'm sure you have heard of as well, of men and women who have labored for years and seen little to no fruit at all, some even dying or being murdered before seeing a single person turn to Christianity. And yet, oh, their faithfulness, their faithfulness is part of God's plan for God uses them to bring about great fruit, great fruit beyond their lives. You know, I was listening uh, to uh, a story of a solo pastor in a small country church recently, and he was describing how he felt so burnt out in gospel ministry. He, he felt like a failure in ministry, and he was seriously questioning whether he ought to continue as, as a pastor of this small church. He was the pastor of a church of about 120 people, and the church was healthy, and yet he was discouraged. And as it turns out, as, as this um, pastor sort of uh, spelled out a little bit more of what he was thinking, and as, as another pastor was talking to him and questioning him, this pastor began to talk about how he was listening to and reading regularly from John Piper and, and Tim Keller. And as he was doing so, he was beginning to compare his ministry with the ministries of John Piper and Tim Keller. And as he compared the two ministries, he started to see things like, well, the really gifted pastors have large churches, and they're seeing people converted to Christ, and they're seeing growth, and this is what it looks like to be a, a, a real pastor, and I don't see that. I'm not seeing people come to know Christ, and I'm not seeing a large congregation, and, and, and so he was doubting whether he was called to ministry. But you see what he was doing? He was judging his faithfulness by something he couldn't control. He had no control over whether or not someone came to Christ. That is the work of God's Spirit alone. And so you cannot judge a ministry based on something that is out of your hands. The only thing that we are called to do is to labor faithfully. And that is what we need to be reminded. This, of course, is both a huge comfort and a huge challenge. This is a huge comfort because the pressure, there is no pressure on us based on results. Some of you undoubtedly are salesmen. My, my dad is a salesman, and I know how if you are a salesman, it does not matter how many hours you work or how hard you work. If you don't make sales, you're not going to make it as a salesman. The pressure is on you to bring results. That's the exact opposite of what Paul is communicating to us as servants of Christ. There is no pressure of results. The call is to be faithful. The call is to labor and to be faithful where God has put you, to do where, what God has called you to do. God's work calls us to be instruments and means and fellow workers as we sit back and watch Him bring the results. And that is a huge comfort. But this, of course, is also a challenge to us because there is a call to be faithful laborers. 
There is a call to be faithful in what God has called us to do. And, and it is so easy for us to come up with excuses for not laboring. And I know because I've used them. We, we know what they look like. The opportunity doesn't seem right. I can't imagine that there would actually be any fruit from doing that. I'm, I've been doing other things for God lately. Surely God doesn't want me to do this and that. I'm tired. I'm worn out. Is that really my responsibility? And so the excuses begin to pile on and on. And sometimes they're excuses that lead us to be lazy laborers. So the call here is this. Rest on God who brings the growth. Seek him and be faithful with where he calls you to labor in his field. And as you do so, you will have the great joy of watching him bring the growth. Thirdly and finally, this passage calls each of us to take care how we build. So we've seen this passage calls us to live amongst one another as people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. This passage calls us to uh, be faithful in laboring where God calls us. And finally, it, it calls us to take care how we build. Look at verse 10. Paul says that um, according to the grace of God, like a skilled master builder, he laid a foundation. That foundation, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that others will build on that foundation. But then he, he calls to the Corinthians brothers. He said, let each one take care how he builds on that foundation. Paul tells us that we ought to take care how we build. And Dr. Light is going to spend much more time on this next week as he looks at verses 11 through 15 in more detail. But here in verses 10 and 11, I think there are two things that Paul tells us should characterize our work. First, Paul says that our work is done according to the grace that God has given us. According to the grace of God given to us. The work that we are called to do, the labor God gives us, is not something that we do because we have skills. It is not something we do because we're working hard. It is not something where God says, all right, I want you to do this, 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 and this, now go do it, and and we have to bring the strength or the ability or the skills. That is not how we work. How do we work? We work according to the grace that God has given us. Now, grace is one of those words that we hear often enough in enough different contexts that maybe it's hard to get a specific idea of what it means to work according to God's grace. What is grace here? What does it mean to work according to that grace? And I think the best definition in this context is to think of the grace of God as the enabling power because of the presence of God in us through His Spirit. The enabling power of God because of the presence of God in us through His Spirit. It's the grace of God. It is not our strength. It is not us doing the work. We are called to labor according to the presence of God's Spirit and the power that comes from God's Spirit. All our labor then, all our building, all our work is done with His enabling power and presence. And the call is to rest on and acknowledge that presence is the power of all ministry. So we are to labor, we are to work, we are to build according to the grace of God given us. Second, we are called to build on the only foundation that has been laid, on Jesus Christ. There are perhaps many things worth doing from a social perspective, many virtuous things, many good things that a person could spend their time doing. 
There are many reasons why we may uh, help uh, a a lady across the street or do other things that are, are socially acceptable. But Paul calls us to see that all work is vain if it is not built on the foundation of the gospel, if it is not built on Jesus Christ, if it is not done because of what Christ has done and who Jesus Christ is, and so that the name of Jesus might be glorified. If there is any motivation of ours, any reason, any goal, any context for us other than praising the name of Jesus because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf, we are laying on the wrong foundation. Now, I was walking through a new development recently. I'm not sure how many of you walk through new developments and watch houses going up. But I was walking through a new development, and there were a number of different styles of houses that were being built in this development. And as I looked at the different houses, I noticed that just looking at the foundation could narrow down which type of house was being built. Just looking at the the foundation that had been laid by the builders would give us an idea of what was happening, what, what kind of house was going to be built. Well, the foundation has already been laid in Jesus Christ, and there is no other foundation that will be laid or can be laid. And so Paul's call here is to see all of our work shaped by the foundation that has already been laid. And that is, again, a great comfort. We're not called to do something new, do something exciting, do something no one has done before. We're called to be faithful where God has called us, laying and building on the foundation that has already been laid in Christ. This is such an encouraging chapter. This is such an encouraging passage to us even as it calls us. Because Christ is the foundation and God brings the results. And while we rest in the truth that Christ is our foundation and God brings the results, we have the joy and the freedom to labor where God has called us. And so Paul's call here is that we may no longer be infants in Christ, but may be ready for the solid food of the sustaining truths of Jesus because we're marked by the presence of God's Spirit not continuing to be characterized by the flesh. And the question is this, that your work and mine might be shaped by and driven by the already completed work of Jesus our Savior, the only foundation worth building on. Let's close in in prayer as we ask God to give us his enabling grace to labor as he calls us. Father, you have called us in Christ. You have done all of the work in Christ. You continue to glorify the name of Christ. And that is the storyline of your people. Every one of us, that is the storyline. Your work through your Son to your glory. I pray that this would be an incredible comfort and joy for us as we, re, as we rejoice and be glad and exalt in this saving God. I pray that it would also be a call to us. I pray that we would long to and would seek to run to you for your, to rest on your enabling grace that we might be faithful as laborers whom you have called. May we do so not, not to receive any reward or to be part of something that someone would follow, but that your name might be praised. We pray this through Christ. Amen.